Hi guys! Welcome to the first episode of Toxic, a podcast where we talk about a lot of things. My name is Jom. I'm a political science student from the University of the Philippines, Visayas. Today, we're going to talk about the postmodern bakla, a discussion on essentialism, social constructionism, and the queer identity. A lot of you would be thinking what a postmodern bakla is. What does it actually mean? Or what essentialism or social constructionism is? But before we delve deeper into these ambiguous concepts, I would like to shed some light on what actually prompted me to make a podcast episode about this topic. For this semester, I'm taking SAS 1, or also known as Self and Society. It's basically a social science course that tackles the self and how the self is situated within a broader societal context. For the first week, we talk about the basic concepts, basic frameworks, and basic theories about the self. It ranges from Mead to Foucault and to other intellectuals who contributed to the idea and notion of the self and how the self is related to society and how society in turn is related to the self. After a deliberate discussion with the class and finishing all of my readings, the general argument and trend presented was that individuals are active agents who have the capacity to be reflexive to challenge and create identities. As a queer person who has been resisting the heteronormative conventions of society of telling me that I should act in a specific way, in a specific masculine way because I am a man, my existence was validated in that all of these identities that we construct is actually a part of a bigger discourse. But what intrigued me the most is actually questioning what bakla means. Is bakla something essential? Is it something that's constant? Or being bakla is actually something that's variable. That being bakla is different from different histories and different timelines and different cultures. It's what intrigued me the most. So to answer these questions, we're going to talk about essentialism and constructionism, postmodernism, and a short history on queerness here in the Philippine context. So this podcast will be composed of a discussion on essentialism and social constructionism. And then next, we're going to discuss postmodernism and how it's related to essentialism and social constructionism. And finally, we're going to um, we're going to synthesize essentialism, constructionism, and postmodernism, all these big concepts to answer our questions. Let's proceed to the next segment of this podcast, Essentialism versus Social Constructionism. Maybe some of you haven't encountered these terms yet, but let's provide a brief and basic definition for each. First, let's define essentialism. What is essentialism? Essentialism originated from the works of Plato. According to Plato, 
all objects in the natural world possess an underlying essence that is discontinuous and constant. So, what Plato means is that a chair possesses a metaphysical core that makes it chair. It constitutes its chairness. We can tell that a chair is different from a rock because of its essential qualities of being a chair and that it's constant that even if we wake up tomorrow, it's still a chair. What constitutes the chair is still present. So basically, I know it's really, really confusing, but it's just telling us that objects in the natural world possess a core, a natural core, an innate quality that makes it distinct and different from other objects. That's why we can tell a plant is different from an animal. That's essentialism. So applying this conceptual framework, um, let's have uh, an example in our social relationships in society. For example, essentialists would argue that there are essential difference between women and men and that there are essential differences between the sexes. For example, essentialists would argue that men, due to biology and evolutionary forces, are motivated to pursue women who are younger and who are more attractive. Um, According to them, men prefer women who are younger and attractive because youth and beauty are indicators of health and fertility. This helps them determine which um, female is actually capable of carrying their offspring. It's an indicator of fertility and wellness. So this is a short-term preference for men in their mating strategies, and it's a general trend among different cultures, according to essentialists. For women, women would be motivated by long-term mating strategies. Women would prefer men who have the capacity to support their child or to commit to them for long-term purposes, for example, because it would help them in child-rearing and um, supporting the growth of the child and the family. This would be a long-term mating strategy that would be different from what generally men would prefer. So, um, essentialists would argue that these basic differences between men and women define them and that they claim that it's not what constitutes womanhood and manhood is biologically defined. So there are essential qualities that um, differentiates men from women. So applying this essentialist concept, how would we apply it to the bakla? How would an essentialist would take how would an essentialist take the bakla as a, an identity? So applying the concept of um, absolutism or constancy, um, an essentialist would say that a bakla possesses the quality of being a bakla because of certain things, for example, that he is um, a male who is feminine and is attracted to the same sex and that this trait is um, constant across, across different cultures and across different times. That's what essentialism would mean. And that there are absolute qualities and innate um, characteristics that define what bakla is.
as opposed to the certainty and absolutes presented by essentialism, social constructionism would give us a different vantage point. According to social constructionists, reality is socially constructed and that how we experience the world and how we think and how our behavior is motivated is actually caused by um, impersonal social forces such as language and discourse. So instead of focusing on the universalities and general truths and trends, social constructionists would put emphasis on variability, on relativity, on how um, experiences are actually local and contextualized, that there are a plurality of experiences that are equally valid. That's how a social constructionist would tell us. For example, a social constructionist would debunk the earlier suggestion that there are differences between men and women. Social constructionists would concede that there are subtle differences between men and women, but there are no essential differences that demarcates a man from a woman. What actually, um, what actually gives um, a man and a woman a difference is that it's because of the cultural context that they are in. For example, um, social constructionists would say that not all men are motivated by youth and beauty. It's actually varying across different cultures. It's just um, Western people, Western men in particular, generally generally prefer beauty and let's say um, youth in order to seek their mates. But in other cultures, um, we have different practices that serve as a standard for beauty. For example, in China, Women engage and practice um, foot binding to in order to make themselves and present themselves as ideal mates for men. Well, we don't see this behavior as a universal experience. It's actually a different experience from one culture and another. For example, in another tribe in Africa, a woman's attractiveness or um, capacity to be a mate is judged by um, how big... Her lips are because of um, lip plates. Or in um, Southeast Asia, there's a tribe that equates um, the desirability of women to how long her neck is by wearing um, metal rings around their necks to elongate, artificially elongate the neck. So we can see that there's variability and in this standard of beauty and we don't see a general trend because um, social constructionists would argue that there's no absolutes in um, how we behave and that there is, no an, there is no standard for desirability and that it's actually socially constructed by different cultures. So that's how a social constructionist would argue. So for example, um, let's apply it to the bakla identity here in the Philippines. How would a social constructionist see it? So they would argue that there are a plurality of identities under the term bakla and not not all bakla um, people who identify such as such have the same experiences they would say that um, one who lives in the rural area is different from one who lives in the urban setting and that not all um, bakla people are essentially feminine some of them are actually masculine as we can see today some gay people or some people who identify as bakla are actually masculine and not gay. So does it make them 
um, less bakla or does it not qualify them as a bakla when they claim they're bakla and they're still masculine in presentation and their actions and their kalooban, let's say. So, does it um, render them less of a bakla? So, these nuances actually present um, a debate on how the bakla identity is defined, especially right now in modern society, in modern Philippines, when we see numerous identities emerging. So, these conceptual frameworks on essentialism and social constructionism actually provide us a sturdy ground to establish the debate on what defines a bakla and how do we actually give meaning to this identity, especially here in the Philippine context because there's a lot of debate on who the bakla is. Is it um, the one who cross-dresses? Is it the one who's just attracted to fellow men even though if they're not feminine, um, behaving in a feminine way? So these questions lead us to actually identify how dynamic and how how identities are constantly changing in society. Up next, we have postmodernism. What is postmodernism and how does it relate to the former concepts that we have discussed, essentialism and social constructionism? So first, let's define what postmodernism is. So postmodernism particularly refers to any social, political, literary, or philosophical movement that emerged after the modernity period. This modernity period was actually the Industrial Revolution, the time that elapsed between the advent of that revolution until the postmodern age. So during that time, a lot of philosophy and movements emerged that presented grand narratives as what they would call it. These grand narratives would um, have um, fundamental claims, which is actually related to essentialism, as we discussed earlier, that there is certainty and that there is an absolute and universal truth. So for um, these movements during the modern period, they claim that there's a moral high ground to actually assess what's good and what is not, what's real and what's not. So they actually believe that we can judge what's um, valid and what's legitimate. So at that time, during that modern period, that was the general trend. But now in the postmodern age, it's actually the opposite. As much as it was certain during the modern period, the postmodern period is actually fragmented. Contrary to the claims of absolute and universal experiences of um, what modern theories would present, postmodern theories and movements would actually claim that there is no universal experience. There is a plurality of identities. There is a plurality of experiences that exist. That there is no absolute truth and there is no moral high ground to judge um, what is the truth and what is not. So, um, postmodernism actually emphasizes relativity, that there are a plurality of identities and things like that. So here we can relate this postmodern um, approach to social constructionism, which focuses on variability, relativity, and 
um, the contextuality of um, human experience. So that what that's what postmodern is. So as I've mentioned earlier, I'm talking about the postmodern bakla. So what does a postmodern bakla mean? So when I say a postmodern bakla is that a bakla who exists in contemporary Philippine society. So what I mean by that is that there are a plurality of gay identities. It doesn't mean that there is an absolute and essential defining quality for what a bakla is. There are actually numerous um, identities for the bakla. Um, and that the word itself, the word bakla itself, is actually ambiguous and limiting for the LGBT experience here in the Philippines. That's what I would argue. And basically, what I'm trying to posit is that we have to deconstruct um, what does it mean to be a bakla. How, how, how would we define ourselves and what experiences do we experience and we should also recognize other um other pluralities of this identity here in the philippine context and in order to fully explicate um what the postmodern bakla is we have to actually delve deeper into the history of queerness here in the philippines which we will discuss next My mom would often argue that back in their days, there was no such thing as a bakla, that it's just a recent phenomenon. Technically, I would agree, but at the same time, I would disagree. I would agree on the grounds that the bakla, specifically the identity of the bakla, is a recent concoction. Yes, it is. But when we talk about um, gender non-conforming practices or culture, it actually predates colonization. It actually dates back to our colonial, pre-colonial communities. So let's have a short history on queer history, specifically um, divided into pre-colonial, Spanish, and American period, which have significant developments in the notion of the bakla. So, before, there's no such thing as a bakla in our pre-colonial communities. However, there is a concept of gender transitivity. So, when we talk about gender transitivity, it is the transitivity of one individual to another gender. For example, from male to female, from man to woman. It's a recognized um, identity. They have Back in the days, in pre-colonial communities, they have the babaylan, the asog, the bayugin, and a lot of um, gender non-conforming identities that was recognized in pre-colonial society. So, they actually um, possessed an esteemed position in society because they believed back in pre-colonial days that the feminine energy or the feminine psyche is much closer to the spiritual world spiritual world so they possess positions as priestesses or leaders because they have the virtue and blessing of the um, spiritual world their motherly instinct so back in the days we were actually more um i can say a little more liberated and had more autonomy on gender fluidity as compared to now so um back in those days 
we already have that kind of concept that did not adhere to the binary of man and woman. There was actually an intermediary between the two. So when the Spanish arrived, the women, the liberty that women enjoyed, the autonomy that women and and other queer folk enjoyed was actually relegated to the margins and was replaced by the machismo, the Mediterranean machismo of um, the Spanish was replaced um, due to the cultural integration. So during the Spanish period, the term bakla was actually created. Bakla actually signifies um, someone who is cowardly. That's what bakla inherently means. And as time developed, bakla was actually equated to men who act in a feminine way or who dress in a feminine way. They would start calling them as bakla. And after this, um, after the period of Spanish colonialism, um, America, the arrival of the Americans um, gave the concept of homosexuality. This was a trend of biomedicalization in which they believed that um, homosexuality was a psychological state of an individual. And this was easily accepted by the Filipino community because in the Tagalogs, the Tagalogs have actually a concept of kalooban in which a person possessed a certain um, inner quality or core, the nature of the person, the kalooban. So, they equated um, homosexuality with the bakla. So, um, basically, the Filipino meaning of um, bakla is actually a syncretic um, combination of Western and native discourse of what actually constitutes a bakla. So, right now, um, the general definition of a bakla is that um, a genitally male individual who has a feminine kalooban. This is where the Tagalog concept of kalooban applies. A feminine kalooban who is attracted to his fellow males. So, we can see that this general conception of um, local and transnational discourse on the LGBT experience is actually much complex and complicated than we can actually conceive. So, when we talk about the bakla, we would normally think about individual men who cross-dress, men who are effeminate, men who are um, attracted with the same sex. But right now, as we see in postmodern society, that's why we have to talk about what a postmodern bakla is. We can see that there's a plurality of identities. We no longer um, constrain the meaning of bakla to, to males who have a feminine kalooban and who are attracted to males. Actually, we label um, anyone who, who's attracted to any male who's attracted to their fellow males as a bakla because we already have the concept of sogi, the compartmentalization of um, gender identity, sexual orientation, and expression. It's actually a Western discourse. That's why it's it's not um, um, it's not accommodating to our concept of bakla because the bakla, the term bakla, actually fuses um, gender identity and sexual orientation, which is not 
which should not be the case in the LG, in the Soji discourse because it's actually a separate compartmentalized um compartmentalized concept. So right now what I mean is that when we talk about the postmodern backlash there actually a plurality of identities we see people who claim themselves to be a bakla even though they don't have a feminine kalooban even if they're not effeminate. They're actually masculine presenting, they actually identify as male, but they're attracted to their fellow males. So, are they less of a bakla? Are they less of um, how we conceive a bakla is? So, we can see that there are emerging identities and that um, bakla is actually a continually dynamic identity that um, is shaped by different individuals, different individuals of the LGBT community. So, applying the concepts that I learned from SAS, it's actually um, actually accommodates um, all of these theories and concepts that individuals have the reflexivity to challenge and continually change these identities. So, for example, when we talk about the bakla right now, we may actually be referring to trans women or we can actually be per, um, um, pertaining to gay people or bisexual men. But it, it's actually now an umbrella term and not just a specific term. So we can see that it's um, how social constructionism and postmodernism contributed to this debate on the identity of the bakla. So as we progress further, as post-modernity um, posits that there is a plurality of experiences and that identities are relative, we actually see more identities emerging. So let me ask again, what does it mean to be a bakla? So that's the question that's really hard to answer. And I hope somehow this podcast has given some substantial answer on defining what the bakla is and that we can give a multi-perspective approach on this topic. So that would be it for the first episode of Toxic, a podcast where we talk about a lot of things. This is John signing off.